0: Trek Profiles Podcast, episode 12, recorded August 2018. This is the Trek Profiles Podcast, where each episode we sit down with a Star Trek fan, we hear their story, and we try to understand why Trek matters to them, to you, and to all of us. I am John, your intrepid host of this whole enterprise, and I welcome you to this, the Trek Profiles Podcast, Episode 12. If you wish to get in touch with us, you can reach us at feedback at trekprofiles.com or on Facebook or Twitter at Trek Profiles. If you wish to leave us a voicemail, you can either send us a voice message using the Tricorder Transmissions website, or leave a message at our automated voicemail line at 609-512-LLAP. That's 609-512-5527. Warning! As we record this, we have reached the end of Season 1 of Star Trek Discovery, so all previous Trek content, up to and including that point, is fair game and may be discussed during this episode. You have been warned, human. With me, as always, is the endlessly fascinating, captivating, entertaining, and always amazing M5 Multitronic Unit. The M5 awaits instructions. What are the messages, news, and weather for this episode, M5? M5 will process your request. The Trek Profiles Podcast is a proud member of the Tricorder Transmissions Podcast Network. If there is one thing we have in abundance in Star Trek fandom, it's great podcasts, so please go check out the other shows on the network if you haven't already. I'd also recommend the wonderful podcasts over at Trek FM, and also the amazing Trek Geeks, who both made the colossal blunder of having me on some of their shows, but please don't hold that against them. If you enjoy this, or any of the other shows on the Tricorder Network, please consider supporting the network on Patreon. Support at any level gets you access to extended and early releases, some uncut episodes, and admittance to our Patreon hangouts, which are always a blast. As I record this, we just finished a hangout in September, and it was a crazy good time. Another way you can support this or any of our shows is to visit our show page in iTunes and give us a nice rating and review. And if you aren't an iTunes user, that's okay too. We love you. We'd appreciate your rating and review in whatever platform you use. Those reviews, they help other fans find our shows, and we appreciate them so very much. Show notes are posted over at trekprofiles.com, where I will link to our guests' information and such online, so there's no need to use your Google Foo. Just head on over there, and you should be able to find everything all in one place. I've made a commitment to doing some Facebook live streams with all of you, and if you are interested in any of those, check us out on facebook.com slash trekprofiles, where I'll post dates and times at least a week in advance. I'd love to chat with all of you there. Let's review the Kobayashi Maru questions from Episode 10 with Duncan Barrett. If you were a founder, which Vorda should be eliminated, Keevan or Yelkren? Changeling Duncan selected Keevan for elimination, and so did the rest of the Great Link of Trek Profiles listeners at 73 to 27%. Personally, I think if you were a founder, and knowing that the Gem Hadar were made in vats, I wouldn't hold Keevan's plotting against his own troops to be all that bad, while Yelgrin was just really dumb. But the allure of Iggy Pop cannot be denied. Next question: Baseball with Cisco or water polo with Archer? In spite of being an actual water polo player at one time in his life, Duncan selected baseball, and all of you did too, by 82-18%. I had to admit surprise at this one. Playing baseball was the only time I ever saw Cisco get completely spun up, and he kind of turned into a jerk. I thought he was actually going to show his knife hand to Nog and Rom at one point. I thought futzing around in the pool with Archer probably would have been a lot more fun and a lot less stressful, but the Kobayashi Maru test is always full of surprises. Time for a snack. There are two items on offer, some nice juicy Yelg melons or Idanian spice pudding. Duncan said the pudding and that choice won decisively at 64 to 36 percent. Worst camping idea ever, summer on Vulcan or winter on the moons of Andoria. Duncan said summer on Vulcan would be worse and most of you agreed at 60 to 40 percent. Can't say I blame you. It's game night on Deep Space Nine. You have two choices. Play Tongo against Quark. Play Kotra against Garrick. Duncan selected Tongo, and all of you did too, by 73 to 27%. This one surprised me. I expected Tongo with Quark to lose, quite honestly. While Garrick is a crafty fellow, he doesn't randomly kill or hurt people. You could walk into a store and get fitted for a new suit. You wouldn't have any problems. He's not going to hurt you unless you try to oppose him in some way or, or, or some kind of threat. But... Quark will totally take all your Quatlews and leave you without even a fraction of a slip of latinum, and he won't even feel bad about it. Plus, Tango seems incredibly more complicated. But there you go. Be sure to follow me on Twitter, and you can vote in the polls after this episode and have your say as well. That's it for the messages and news. M5, load the interview with this episode's guest and let's roll it. Acknowledged. His favorite episode is "The Measure of a Man." He's a prolific science blogger and writer with degrees in classics and physics from Northwestern and a PhD in astrophysics from the University of Florida. Go Gators! You can find him on the Twitter at Starts With a Bang, and you can also find his science blog, also strangely enough named Starts With a Bang, at Forbes Online. He is from Portland, Oregon, North America, Earth, in Sector 001. It's Dr. Ethan Siegel. Welcome, Ethan, and thank you for being on the podcast.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure to be here from one member of the Alpha Quadrant to another. It's absolutely a joy to be here on Trek Profiles with you,
0: John. Thank you. And straight to question one, Ethan, are you a Star Trek fan?
1: You know, this is something where if you had asked me this, I guess, 28 years ago, I would have had to say like, no, Star Trek, why would anyone like that? But 27 years onward, I would have been like, oh my God, of course, like, who would experience Star Trek and not be a fan? For me, becoming a Star Trek fan was was sort of the reverse of a lot of scientists I know. For a lot of scientists, it was watching star trek is what inspired them to go into science to to explore the universe and to to be a part of it for me it was the other way around that i was always curious about the universe and space and what's out there and what's it all about and what does it all mean and then when i discovered star trek for me that was the addition of the utopian element the altruistic element the the let's put our faith in the hope of a better tomorrow, and all work together for the benefit of not just humanity, but any other species we may encounter beyond Earth. Um, Star Trek was what brought me into that world of hope about the universe. So yes, I absolutely am a Star Trek fan.
0: Well, you know, we're we're jumping ahead here, but I think that's okay, because we can talk about whatever we want. And it's my podcast and I'm the boss. So you talked about the idea that that hope for the future. And I got asked once what I thought Star Trek was. And my reaction was I had to think about it for a second. And I said, well, I think it's really just a show about people believing that the future is going to be better than today. And I think the person who asked me this question was expecting me to respond with something about spaceships or something like that. And to me, that's not it at all. It's just all Star Trek fans. You have to be a long-term optimist if you're a Star Trek fan. It, you you can't believe in the Blade Runner future and be a Trek fan. That that's always been my thought about it and you you, you seem to have captured it uh, encapsulated it beautifully with what you just said.
1: Yeah, well, you know, you've got to remember when Star Trek and this is Before my time, I'll, I'll fess up to the whole world. I was born in 1978, so that should tell you exactly how old I am and, and what my cultural touchstones are. But when the original series came out, Star Trek was so different from all the other space you know dramas or comedies or shows or movies out there this this wasn't about the threat of an alien invasion this wasn't about you know our fears of getting lost or stranded in a vast universe this wasn't about you know having to having to encounter a technologically advanced species that had the capacity to destroy us and that we had to find out again fight back against this isn't some twilight zone episode this isn't lost in space This isn't uh, the day the Earth stood stood still. This was Star Trek. This is saying, you know, hey, what if we took all of these different things that we've developed and worked on and are working towards? And what if it all worked out right? What if instead of vying with each other over, you know, squabbling over our limited resources, what if we used all the scientific and technological benefits that humanity could ever develop? And let's envision some far off future futuristic ones, too, and use that for the benefit of all of humanity, where we would overcome our national boundaries, where we would overcome our I'm better than you tendencies, and instead we could all work together to build something great that everyone could enjoy. We could eliminate poverty. We could eliminate war. We could eliminate want. We could eliminate Uh, insecurity and inequality and starvation and all of these ills, medicinal ills that plague society today and instead bring about a future that's not only better than a king would have today, but that's better than, that's better for everyone. That's not just better for the top wealthiest, most successful people on earth. But that's better for absolutely everyone anywhere in the galaxy.
0: In your response to my first question, you had made a reference to 27 versus 28 years ago, and that seemed to me to be oddly specific. Is there some event that you were referencing in particular? Well, so the original series, you know, had long been done, and the next generation was on
1: the air. And I will fess up that, you know, when I was about twelve years old or so, I'd seen an episode of Next Generation, and I think it was a a season one episode, and I remember being not very enthused about it, and only like halfway watching it, and, and and not being excited about the show. And then I believe it. It was uh, like summer camp when I was 13. I met someone who was a huge Star Trek fan. And I was like, why Why do you like this? Like, what is it that gets you excited? And and he started telling me about it. And he started telling me more about it. And I was like, you know what? I deserve to give this a real chance. I deserve to give this a new chance. And I went and I, I watched another episode, and it happened to be a later episode. It happened to be, I think, a season three episode at the time. And still TNG. Still TNG. And and it was a Picard-focused episode. I, I don't remember which one it was, but watching an episode where Picard was highlighted – That really spoke to me. That really gave to me, you know what, like you don't need to have the most firepower. You don't need to have the most brute force. You don't need to be the strongest. You don't need to be the cleverest, but you do absolutely need to have integrity and you need to have the trust of the people around you and you need to inspire that trust in them. And for me, for me, that was just such a huge thing to see. To see someone who wasn't like some maverick cowboy John Wayne, you know, person in a leadership role who was thoughtful, who was circumspect, who would sometimes be willing to let his ship get fired on rather than fire the first shot to play the long game and to come out with a good outcome not just for himself and not just for the federation but for his overall crew for everyone he was in charge of and that to me was wow this is this is like a new type of leadership this is something i'm i'm not familiar with that i haven't been exposed to before and so to see that example of a new type of leader to see that example of what it looks like to to face a difficult situation, to consider all the options, to make a difficult decision, but then to be proud that you didn't just you know, do the off-the-cuff right thing, that you thought about it and you played the long game and you played it well and you wound up doing something that led to a, a smart outcome. You made a smart decision. For me, that was that was brilliant, and that was my start of getting sucked into the Star Trek universe. And to this day, TNG remains my favorite of all the incarnations of the different series in Star Trek.
0: So, as we record this today, have you seen all seven hundred and something hours of of all the Star Treks? I will fess up; I haven't seen all of them. I'm I'm biased towards the ones that are my favorites. So,
1: I've seen all of TNG. I've seen almost all of Deep Space Nine. Uh, I have seen all of Discovery because that's brand new. And then I've seen a lot of Voyager and a lot of the original series and some of Enterprise and almost none of the animated series. And that's probably fair to say that's, uh, that's close to my ranking order for where I'd put those different shows.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. That's fair enough. You know, I think that that's okay. It's, uh, it's actually interesting because I'm doing a very disciplined rewatch of, of Star Trek. So I went back to the beginning and, and I'm watch, I started watching them all in chronological order uh, right back to September 1968, and just started watching them all. There's some episodes that I have absolute metaphysical certitude that I watched it when it was either in broadcast or on the Netflix uh, DVD by Mail Days. And I have no recollection of watching. I'm watching it saying, I know I've seen this i i know it and i have no memory of it so even when you watch them all you can always go back and watch them again so it's it's fine when you're watching star trek do you tend to skip around or do you tend to just watch it in order or what, what, what do you choose to do
1: well with with discovery because it's brand new i i tend to go in order and if there's something that i haven't seen you know Star Trek, Star Trek—the earlier days of Star Trek—it was very serialized. Where you know you've got this self-contained episode, and and you can watch it. And there's pretty much going to be mostly a reset. There there are a few things that you can miss. Obviously, you know if you if you miss uh, if you miss the season finale of a season of Voyager, and then you come back the next season and you skip around there, you might be like, "Where's Kess? And who is this Borg woman?" And okay, yeah. There's, there's some of that where, where characters change and whatnot. But but for the most part, I think skipping around and picking and choosing works out very well for Star Trek, because it lends itself very much to, hey, we've got this challenge that we're facing, and this challenge is going to be either a self-contained single or double episode. There may be fallout, there may be an aftermath to deal with, there may be character changes and growth that happen as a result of that, But but you can plop yourself down and watch something happen and... And, and I think for me that freedom is something I very much enjoy and very much like to explore. I will say that Discovery doesn't really give you that in the same way, uh, except for maybe that time loop episode, that, that seventh episode. That was, that was a lot of fun. And that one stands alone extraordinarily well.
0: Yeah, watching uh, Discovery is like trying to pick apart a part of burrito into its constituent parts. It's just it's not a good decision. You, you have to eat the whole thing or just try something else. You really have to look at it, I think, a season at a time as opposed to a, an episode at a time. So I think you're right on there. Do you collect anything?
1: You know, it's really funny. I, I don't think of myself as a collector. And I sit here and I'm looking at an autographed drawing of Marina Sirtis. So, um, you know, I do have some things that I collect. I have a, I have a Deep Space Nine runabout Christmas ornament. Um, I have, you know, a Star Trek uniform. I have, you know, I have a TNG communicator pin and the pips. So um, and I have a pair of Vulcan ears. So I, you know, look, I, I'm not the biggest collector of things, but, but I have a small collection of, of Star Trek items. And I, of course I have some Star Trek books as well. Cause they're, I mean, it's so much fun to spend time in that universe any way you do it. So, so yeah, I, I have a few things that I collect.
0: So I have to ask why Marina in particular, was it just opportunity or was counselor Troy particularly meaningful to you in some way or, or what? You know, it's it's a gift. It was a gift. And that's why I have it. But I think it's
1: it was very it was a very nice gift to receive because Marina is someone that, you know, when I watched her on the show, I I had thought of Counselor Troy as a as a very kind and caring person that, you know, was something that I think when you're a teenager, you could feel like, hmm, that's, that's really something I need more of in my life is someone who will actually, you know, who actually give a crap about what happens to you and will help you give a crap about what happens to yourself. And that was that was something that I related to. But, but she had a few moments where where I think she really stood out to me for how how vulnerable she was and how she struggled with a lot of the things that, you know, that someone like Captain Picard didn't struggle with. Like there was an episode where she was training to be to be a command-level officer. And one of the challenges she had to face was a was a problem with the warp core. And she kept going into the simulator and kept trying to solve the problem. And she couldn't solve the problem. She couldn't figure it out. And the ship kept blowing up. And finally, she gets towards the end of the episode and realizes that the way to save the ship, the way to save the crew, is to send someone she's close to into the dangerous place to fix it manually, knowing he's going to die. And she sends a simulated Geordie LaForge to his death. And that to me was a big, big moment of personal growth for her and i think it was revelatory to me to see adults needing to grow and adults needing to make difficult decisions and take an enormous loss that they're responsible for in order to achieve a greater good in order to in order to save the majority of people and and i really liked her for that but after next generation ended and i started to hear interviews with her and learn what she was all about that's that's when i really became not just a counselor troy fan but a marina Sirtis fan and looking back on on how that show ended um looking back you know from my 40 year old viewpoint on on how she wound up being written and how her relationships were I kind of feel like she deserved better than William Riker. And I I, I still kind of in my own fan fiction head, imagine a, imagine a future where she wound up with someone who wasn't so callous with how she feels and careless with her heart and, and where she wound up having a, a life and a love that anyone would be happy to have rather than having to settle for, yeah, I guess Commander Riker's the best I'm going to do. I wish they wrote her someone
0: better. Well, they always uh, flirted with the idea of her ending up with Worf, uh, which they backed away from uh, at some point.
1: Yeah, honestly, I think of all the people that she could have wound up with, I would have been most happy to see her wind up with Tom Riker. Nice. Tell me about that.
0: What did did Tom have that William doesn't?
1: Will chose his career over her. Like just point blank, just chose his career over her. And she had to live with that. And Tom never did. Tom chose her a hundred percent of the way. And yes, Tom had, you know, all those years stranded on a planet, forgotten and lost. And she was the one thing that he hung on to for hope. And Tom never hurt her. Tom was always good to her. Thomas Riker really, I feel like. He's the version of Will Riker that that made different choices, that that was bolder, that that thought he could have it all, that that didn't that didn't make other people make less of themselves to be with him. And that that I feel is what is what anyone deserves. You you don't have to sell yourself
0: short to choose someone else. That's thats what I would have liked to have seen. That's a that's a profound insight. When Whenever I think of Troy, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, my take on the character is somewhat similar to yours in that I, I feel like she deserved better, not just in her choice of partners, but also in how she was treated as a character in the show. Because it seemed to me that whenever they wanted some female character to be abused in some way, she was always at the top of the list.
1: Oh yeah, I mean look, like looking back on this I I wouldn't have called it this when I was, you know, 14, but looking back on it as a grown-up like she was she was either physically or mentally raped by by probably dozens of different, you know, people across the across the galaxy. And and that's not really something that i'm super comfortable watching and being like oh yeah like this is just the star trek utopian future and by the way the one person with like all these empathetic abilities is having her mind invaded and forced to do things that she would never do uh not not really the best outcome but one of the things I loved on that show was the dynamic between Deanna and Loxana Troy I I thought that counselor Troy's mother uh, played by Major Barrett of course was was just fantastic like there was there was nothing in the universe that was going to dissuade Loxana Troy from believing that she was the greatest thing since sliced bread that Everybody thought so. And that if you didn't think so, you were wrong and you were going to be told how it actually is. And and that I feel is something that that is something that I feel like was an attitude that never served Waxana Troy poorly.
0: I, I have to admit, I think it's a parental superpower to have like infinite abilities to embarrass your child. Uh, it, it really is. And she she's got that in spades for sure. Yeah and she was super good at embarrassing Captain Picard too and
1: that was always one of my favorite things because Loxana like would just go on and on and on about how Jean-Luc was always in love with her and Jean-Luc is very clearly like the oh my god I I'm not interested in that but you know what like I feel like Loxana was I love Captain Picard. I think he's like the ultimate space captain dad that everyone wants. And yet for Loxana, she's someone that I look at and I'm like, you know what? Sean Luke isn't good enough for her. Like she's he's not the right fit for her. She needs someone who who can handle someone as strong and vocal and outspoken. And I don't really give a damn attitude that she has and that was just spectacular and and honestly i feel like i feel like there's a huge part of counselor troy that was that way also that didn't really get to come out as much as i would have liked to have seen because marina has it
0: (laughs) oh yeah oh yeah she's she's more luxana than luxana is i want to talk about how i actually came across you and and got involved with reading your work, uh, which was that at STLV just recently, uh, I went to one of the panels at the, uh, in the, I think, what what are they calling it? What do they call it this year? The All Access Theater or the Roddenberry Theater? I can't remember what they called it. Uh, Yeah, I think it was. I think it was the All Access Theater. And you were giving a wonderful talk all about cosmology and Star Trek and all that. And I was live tweeting it a little bit. And that's how I encountered you for the first time. And I thought, this guy's fantastic. I I really want to get him on the show so can you talk to me about your convention experience um, you were a speaker this year have you been a speaker before have you attended just as a as a convention goer uh, what do you think about the whole thing
1: I mean this was this was my second year at Star Trek Las Vegas last year was my first and uh, you know what a what a wonderful experience you know I think anytime you I think anytime you find that you are just a huge, genuine fan of something where, where there's something, a work of art, a creative endeavor, uh, whatever it is that's caught your fancy that's captured your imagination when you get to when you get to be around a whole group of people a large group of people that share that same love and that same passion where that same piece of art that spoke to you also spoke to them you feel like you're you feel like you found a a home in a way that you've never that that no other way really matches up to where you're like hey like I have this incredible passion for Star Trek for example because that's that's what we all do yeah you're going to meet people who like they love the original series or they love TNG or they love Voyager or they love like whatever it is that they love what that spoke to them the most you're going to find something that you also share with them and for some people You're going to share a whole lot of things with them to be in that environment where you can where you can just totally nerd out about whatever it is you like, where you can have silly or deep conversations about your favorite characters and the writing and the plot points. And and you can start to excite your own imagination for that. That's that's really just a remarkable thing. Um, And so I'd been to conventions before just for you know, science fiction, fantasy, comic books, things like that in general for a number of years. But last year was my first Star Trek convention. And going back this year, I felt like, wow, this is really different from a lot of other conventions. Because instead of having like five or six or more different things going on all in parallel, at Star Trek Las Vegas, there's really only like two or three uh, separate places where things go on at any given time. But you're around people who are in costume, who are fans, who are vendors, who have just this incredible love. So at Star Trek Las Vegas, I feel it's, it's much more about sharing your experience with the people who are there than, than any other type of convention I've been to. And that, that's, that's just a really, that's just a really fascinating experience because I feel like I've gotten to, I've gotten to talk with people that have opened my eyes to new ways of looking at and appreciating Star Trek, uh, that I wouldn't have found if the convention wasn't run the way it's run?
0: I have to agree with you. I think it's it's hard, I think, for people who've never been to, to explain how liberating it is to be in a place where the things that you might normally censor yourself from saying, not because it's inappropriate or wrong in any way, but because you, you feel like it's a it's a Star Trek thing that, you know, pleases you or you you observed something that's a Star Trek thing or makes you think of something from Trek. And in your normal life, you may not say it because you're around people who probably won't get it. But you're in a room, you're in a place where if you walk into a room and you're like, wow, I I estimate there's 47 people in this room. You will understand why everyone thinks that's funny. (laughs) And you don't have to explain it, right? Everyone else is going to go, that's hilarious. And it's just a place where you can totally be as Trek as you want to be. And uh, it's just a great thing. No, it absolutely is. And I love that I didn't see anyone get shamed for not knowing
1: all of the details of all of the Trek things. I I had someone, for instance, in one of my years there explain what the 4-7 is all about to me. And I, I didn't know initially. And then I did know. And I was like, oh... That makes so much more sense. That's why that's why Stephen Hawking's winning poker hand in Next Generation is four sevens. That's right. It's like you start to notice these things that show up because because they're like little inside fan Easter eggs.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it's just a place where, you know, for the most part, I mean, most people accept everybody else, right? No one's gonna spend all that money and all that time and effort to to go hate on something, right? You you go there because you love it. And while there is a lot of gatekeeping and fandom and a lot of negativity i think those people for the most part aren't going to a convention to to do that
1: i will say i i saw less of that at the star trek conventions than i have at any other science fiction fantasy conventions i've been to there was less gatekeeping there was more openness and there was more just general curiosity um than than there has been otherwise.
0: So I want to return to something we you mentioned briefly, and, and I want to come back to it and spend a little bit of time dissecting this like a vole on Lorca's Chamber of Horrors and Discovery in his office there. You talked about how you were into science. You went to study physics, of course. And by the way, classics and physics together, I think that makes you uniquely qualified to talk about Star Trek uh, in some way. Um, <laughs> and, and then you came into the fandom really after being more of a scientist as opposed to the normal story that we hear of someone being inspired by trek to to go into science so tell me about being someone who has written extensively about astrophysics and cosmology and all of that watching star trek knowing all the things you know how is that experience for you the way i approach any
1: any fictional universe as a scientist is i say okay like, I know, I know the laws of physics and the rules of nature as best as I know them, as as best as humanity knows them. And now here we are in the future. And in this case, since we're talking about Star Trek, we're assuming that the universe obeys all the same rules that our universe does. It's just, okay, we live in the future, so we've discovered more laws of physics or better laws of nature. We understand things a little bit better. We have much more advanced technology, so we can manipulate matter and space and time a little bit more intricately and in in novel ways compared to what we can do today. So that's a part of it as well. So for me, I just like to figure out what are the rules of the game? What are the rules of the game in this new world in the future in star trek you know in the mirror universe whatever it is what are the rules of this game and then i try to just say okay on the one hand if i want to think about oh we know it doesn't work that way i'm not going to enjoy it don't think about it that way think about okay if we want this to happen how would the rules be different? How would the rules need to be different from what we think the rules are today In order for this to work And if I can come up with something Then that's a really Exciting thing for me to think about To look at the science and say right? If you look at the science and you're like oh, You'd never have a mycelium network in space Mycelium weren't even the first organisms On earth, they took billions of years To involve, like, okay, yeah It did, it took billions of years to involve Fungi, that, they were not the first Thing, eukaryotes did Not come before the archaeology bacteria. So, okay, great. What's that going to get me? No, you're not going to get anything with that. But if you start looking at something like the spore drive and you start asking questions of, okay, like... This isn't how the laws of nature work as far as we can do them. So warp drive isn't how things work as far as we do them. Dilithium isn't like the thing that's going to power a warp drive if we could power a warp drive. But don't harp on those details. Use that as, okay. Star Trek is using it as a plot device and if i'm interested in it as a scientific device then then that's a separate question and i should be asking okay when they say warp nacelles what are they talking about when they say mycelium network what is a real life thing that could potentially be something set up that interestingly so That's how I try to approach it. I try to say, okay, look, there's a difference between science and science fiction. If science fiction got everything scientifically correct, we wouldn't need scientists. We would just hire science fiction writers and they would tell us how to build all the things we dream of building and we'd go and build them but this is still fiction so enjoy the fiction for what it is enjoy the the universe that they've built and and try and try and relate to that and enjoy it for the good thing that it is and beyond that don't overthink it unless you're going to enjoy overthinking it unless you're going to say okay how would I make this physically possible? How could this be viable? What what would this look like? And that's what some people have done and why uh, in 1994, someone like uh, theoretical physicist Miguel Alcubierre came up with a solution to Einstein's equations that admits a warp drive possibility. You could say, okay, like, yeah, we'd need some new things in the universe. We'd need some sort of negative energy or negative mass, and we'd need some way to harness it. And we'd need some way to compel space-time to bend in this new way and then unbend it while keeping the ship in the middle completely safe. And then we need to move close to the speed of light while moving this uh, patch of space time with us, turning it on and then before we moved and then turning it off when we were done moving. But you know what? OK, so that's. That's going to take a lot of energy. That's going to take a new form of matter. Um, all of that is fine. The thing that I find fascinating is something that was thought up of to be a science fiction dream to to accomplish something that we didn't know we'd be able to accomplish. Um, can actually be physically possible, and we can say here's what would have to be different, or here what here's what we'd have to overcome, or here are the challenges we'd have to rise to in order to make it real. So I feel like knowing a little bit of that extra science means that I can I can look at something like that and say wow this is this is fascinating and now I get to enjoy it on an extra level because it's also this intellectual fodder for how can we make this real if we wanted to.
0: Uh, which by the way if uh, anybody listening to this is interested I'd have to strongly recommend uh, Ethan's book, uh, Technology, where he talks a lot about this kind of stuff in depth. But my question for you, I suppose, is that when I think about the history of physics, right? We had Newtonian physics which seemed to be pretty much the best you could get for the longest time, right? And there wasn't really experiments that people had that could that could say any of it was wrong. And then we had Einstein that that sort of upended Newtonian physics in a way. And it seems like you're presupposing like there's going to be future iterations that'll tell us even more and rewrite the things that we know now to be quote unquote true to give us more capability. And there could be these other things in the future. And and it's very exciting.
1: I'll, I'll tell you two things. First off, I will agree that I do not think fundamental science is over. I do not think we have discovered all there is to discover about this universe. I think that from now until the end of my life, there will be many, many breakthroughs, some of which will be very surprising and some of which will potentially be extremely revolutionary because just as in my 40 years so far, there's been a tremendous set of developments On every front, from which particles exist to what is the fate of the universe to what is the universe made out of. Like, there have been a lot of big revolutions just in fundamental physics and astronomy that I think. We'd be very, very silly to assume there aren't going to be additional breakthroughs. But the second thing I'd like to point out is that many of the breakthroughs that we're looking forward to technologically don't require new physics of the 28 technologies that I profile. In my book, Technology, The Science of Star Trek from Tricorders to Warp Drive, I, I profile 28 different technologies that show up in the various incarnations of Star Trek. 24 of them are feasible today. They're not here, all of them, but they're all feasible without any new laws of physics. So to say oh, we might discover new laws of physics, we might discover new rules. Yeah, that would be amazing, but you know what? Even if we don't, a huge number of these technologies that we don't have access to today, that we're working on today. There's every reason to believe they can come to fruition. There's no physical limitation stopping them. The only constraints are practical and technical. And yes, those are sometimes some big obstacles to overcome, but if you look at what the original series envisioned, for example, for computational technologies, or in many ways for medical and biological technologies, It envisioned this is going to be what the future is like hundreds of years from now. And then 21 years later, when Star Trek The Next Generation came out, they had to basically redo a whole bunch of them because in just 20 years, we had advanced farther than the
0: original series imagined we would advance in hundreds. I can't imagine what it was like to be someone who was involved in, say, putting together Discovery before it went on the air. To talk about the fact that well we're doing this prequel and we're making it in 2019 and it's set before the original series but we have to make the show accessible and believable to a 2018 2017 television audience so they kind of had to walk this knife edge path of making a, a future that looks futuristic but yet was still true to star trek in some way knowing what we know about the universe very very difficult
1: for sure I think they succeeded so admirably. You know, I think that, you know, again, you look up at the first season and you can see a lot of growing pains. But I think for me, when you watch Star Trek The Next Generation and you're looking at seasons three through seven, they just did such a fantastic job. They really built a wonderful show and a wonderful ensemble cast of characters that you just wanted to spend time in that world. Discovery has been very interesting for that too, because you can't go and look at like and say, oh, this took place 10 years before the original series. We better make sure we don't have any of those original series technologies. Like really? In the original series, they didn't have Pads. They The closest they came to imagining that was an electronic clipboard. Well, look, we have smartphones today that are more powerful than any pad that shows up in Star Trek The Next Generation. Are you saying we should pretend that doesn't exist? No, absolutely not. You need something that looks futuristic for the audience you're airing it for today. So I think they made a very smart move with the visual redesign of Discovery, and I I think they made a very smart move by not holding to, oh, this is established canon for the timeline of technological advancement. No, you build the show that's right for the audience you're making the show for today. And I think that they did a good job of that with Next Generation. I think they did a good job of that with Discovery. And I'm looking forward to what seasons two and beyond will actually hold for for developing that for the current audience of people, many of whom are being exposed
0: to their first contemporary Star Trek series. You and me both, absolutely. One of the things that I did in preparation for the show was that I turned the M5 loose and I asked him to calculate for me a list of episodes that we should talk about. And on the, I think we should jump into the list and we'll, we'll see where it goes. I think I want to start by asking you about yesterday's Enterprise and this was selected for us please tell me why m5 thinks this is an episode that's meaningful and, and or important to you
1: the whole idea that we have that the past is immutable and the future is not yet written is is one that's extremely central to the human experience right we we cannot change the past that's that's something that's that's virtually immutable but another thing that we also believe very strongly and we see a ton of evidence for is that a very, very small change that you could have made, a very small change in initial conditions can very much lead to an extraordinarily different outcome. Uh, one of the, the things that fascinated me about physics when I first learned about it was something that they call the double pendulum experiment. You know what a pendulum is. So a double pendulum is saying like, okay, I've got like a string with a ball at the end. And then a double pendulum is and at the bottom of that ball, I've got another string and another ball. Well, if I take two single pendulums that are identical, you know, the string is the same length and the mass is the same length, and I pull them back the same distance and I let them both go next to each other, they're going to swing in phase back and forth until they come to rest. That's, that's a very boring experiment, but it's very easy to do. If you take a double pendulum now and you take that bottom ball And you pull them both back the same way and you let them both go for a few seconds. If you pull them back as identically as you can, they're going to go the same for a while and then you'll notice that one will do something very small different than the other and then after that they will just go totally out of whack from each other they will not match up any longer they will never match up again this is just you make a small change to the initial condition so small you couldn't even perceive it with all the apparatuses you had available and bam Chaos takes over. Sometimes people call this the butterfly effect. Some people call this a manifestation of chaos theory. That was something that I loved the exploration of that in Yesterday's Enterprise. That you had an event that happened, you know, generations ago, where, okay, you had the Enterprise C, and there was a conflict, and there was an attack, and Canonically, right historically, what happened in the correct timeline is there was a ship, a Federation ship, that went and defended a Klingon outpost that was being attacked. The Federation ship was destroyed, but they died valiantly, and this led to a tremendous Klingon Federation alliance. In yesterday's enterprise they explored what if something slightly different happened. What if the enterprise what if the enterprise C was there and they were working to defend the Klingon outpost and all of a sudden a tiny ripple in space opened and they came through into the future where they were suddenly t- transported out of the way doesn't seem like that much difference as far as anyone is concerned. The Enterprise didn't successfully repel the attack. The Enterprise is destroyed. They disappear. Why would this lead to such a different outcome? But it leads to such a different outcome. And from our point of view in the future where we know, oh, that's what the correct timeline should have looked like. Something's wrong here. The only one who has that observer omniscience that we as the audience have is is because you know she's weird and that gets explained a little bit more in uh (laughs) that gets explained a little bit more in the movies involving the next generation cast but in the meantime this is just a fascinating exploration of both time travel and also this butterfly effect and for me to see how such a small change can lead to just a vastly different outcome just a few years later all over the galaxy is fascinating to see that so clearly manifested. I thought, what a what a great exploration of how even the small, seemingly insignificant decisions you make today can vitally impact the entire world or galaxy down the road like that makes me feel even though we are so small and we feel so insignificant that the small acts we engage in on a daily basis can actually have a profound impact on the larger world and universe around us. And that that was something I really liked about yesterday's Enterprise. Also, it was just lovely to see Captain Picard letting his ship be destroyed to protect the Enterprise, like that that was such a nice parallel to me that, that the whole reason that, that there was this strong Federation Klingon alliance and there was this peace and there was this, this thriving relationship between former adversaries was because what happened? The Enterprise had to defend the Klingons against an aggressor. And what does Picard do in the in that episode? He defends the Enterprise C to get them back to their original timeline so they can restore the original fate. And he sacrifices his own ship and his own crew against the aggressors to allow that to happen. It was, it was a real nice bookend of not just saying like, hey, you go sacrifice yourself for the greater good. It was really a spectacular example of everyone putting their
0: money where their mouth is. Put it in a nutshell. It seems like you reject a deterministic universe.
1: You know, I won't I won't say I
0: reject a deterministic
1: universe because I think quantum mechanics does a pretty good job of demonstrating that the universe is not deterministic period. But but I will say that I very much like the idea that let's see how to put it. Humanity is something extremely special in this universe because we have the ability to better ourselves. We have the ability to create a better future for ourselves through our actions every day. And I think yesterday's enterprise was a wonderful example of that, just very clearly exemplified.
0: Well, then let's turn to your favorite episode, Measure of a Man.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that one. That's one that I rewatch periodically just for fun. Like we talked about earlier as a standalone episode, I think it stands so well on its own. And yes, I am very aware that this is not even in my golden age of season three to season seven TNG episodes. It's before.
0: Yeah, it's a Pulaski episode for sure. Because um, that, that's how I always remember season two, right? It's got Dr. Pulaski. But as you watch the episode, is it a data story or a Picard story you know one of the
1: one of the great things about next generation is there is such a strong ensemble cast there I I think for me this is a, this is a trifecta story where it's really about Picard and data and also Riker because Riker is forced to be the prosecutor in this. And, you know, Riker's like, oh, I recuse myself. And they're like, fine. I find him guilty. Like, no. okay, fine. I'll do it. I'll prosecute him. And he does. He you know, there is this idea that at least for me, when I first saw this as a teenager, I remember thinking like, geez, like in a court of law. How can you defend someone that you know is guilty, that you know is disgusting, that you know deserves to be put away for what they did? How can you defend someone? And well, there's the idea that everyone deserves the highest quality legal defense that they can get. And when Riker had to step up to be a prosecutor in that, I think that was that was a really interesting turn of events for me, because it was like you don't often think of right and wrong as involving like you have to make the strongest prosecutory case that you can but that that showed up there as well to me this was this was really a strong ethics episode and yes like i i love the picard argument in that where he talks about sentience sentience and consciousness and what makes something not just alive but what makes something you know what gives something rights where do your rights come from and even though it is like a a very just courtroom esque episode that really does focus on a little bottle between between the judge and the doctor that you love to hate, the Federation scientist who wants to dissect data and reproduce what Doctor Soong did and try and make an army of datas. And you know, you you look at that and it's easy to have the callbacks to discussions about eugenics and discussions about where is can you turn someone into property by, by not giving them the rights of an autonomous being and, and where does that argument lead you? But I, I think that focus on those three of Riker and Picard and Data and what they say and what they show and what they want, no, Data isn't human. He's something very, very distinct from a human being, but he's a fascinating, unique creature in this universe, whether he's alive or not, whether he's just a robot or just a machine, or whether he's more than that, you find yourself feeling at the end that it doesn't actually matter what the actual answer is. What matters is how we as human beings treat the unknown. Do we give the unknown the benefit of the doubt and say, you know what, in the face of uncertainty, we err on the side of giving rights to things that we don't know whether they whether they would earn those rights by our standards and they make us question our own standards are are our standards fair or are they very human centric? It's a it's a wonderful exploration where I think it makes you think much, much more deeply than the issue that the episode even takes on. And that for me is when Star Trek The Next Generation or any Star Trek series is at its best, is where it holds that mirror of – You know, with that disconnect of, oh, this is set in the future, in space and in places where we aren't, in in timelines where we aren't, where you see that, you really say to yourself, well what is the right thing to do? And how does that impact my life and my actions? And and what is the right thing to do when I find myself in situations like that? And I think they get it right. In the face of uncertainty, you err on the sides of rights for all.
0: I was preparing to do another podcast with another guest and on the list for, for that guest was Measure of a Man but also The Offspring, uh, an episode which is not on your list. But I, I ended up preparing for that show by watching both episodes back to back. Just There wasn't any rhyme or reason to it. It just turned out that that's how I happened to hit the buttons on uh, Amazon to watch them. And what was interesting to me was that it was actually jarring. Because I agree with everything you said about how this episode is, about Picard is you know not just arguing uh, a case, but he believes what he's arguing for. He, 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 he believes he's on the right side, and he's very passionate about it. Then when you watch The Offspring, I was taken aback by when Data goes and reports that he now has created another android. Picard just seems annoyed. And says, Well, you should have come and talked to me. You should have involved me in this decision. And Data calls him on it and says, Well, do, does everyone else in the ship uh, involve you when they choose to uh, procreate? Right. And uh, he has a very different way of being in that episode when it came to this. And so I just think that that's an interesting experiment for people to, to watch those two episodes back to back because you get some, you get a real different vibe from Picard there. And, and it's very interesting to think through like what the thought process was. It's, a, it's an interesting comparison. I I think I agree with that. And it also, I think, speaks
1: to our minds that even when we've reached a decision in one aspect of our lives, we still find ourselves mired in an older way of thinking that, that maybe we wouldn't agree with if we examined it today because it's how we've thought about things previously. You know, when you think about, when you think about, for example, artificial intelligence, one of the things that you can do is you can program a computer to program another computer. That's, that's one of the things that we do as humans when we work with artificial intelligence is we can program a computer to write their own computer code, either for their own machine or for a different machine. And this is something that, that computers do. Does this mean that their code, that they're writing, is property of the person who wrote the code for the first machine to write? Does it mean that this code is inferior to code written by a human because it was written with a limited set of instructions that, that the machine could write with? You know, I I think the answer is no on both counts. But I think that that's something that that definitely comes up when it comes to the offspring, because we don't know if data is alive. We don't know if data is more than the sum of his parts. We don't know if data goes beyond his programming or is fundamentally limited by his programming. And we don't know if data wasn't programmed to have the urge to create his own offspring by Noonien soon. We don't know any of this. And I think that it's good that we don't know any of this because it shouldn't matter. It doesn't make it more or less interesting to explore data-creating lol if we know the answers to those questions. I think that, that it is very interesting to see Picard make a decision where he's like, you should have talked to me about this. You know, why? Why should I have talked to you about this? It's not like, it's not like we we are in a state of war and every mouth to feed needs to be accounted for and that includes every robotic mouth like no that's that's not where we are we are a ship of exploration and here we are exploring something brand new that i've never done before that no one's ever done before because there's never been anyone like me and there's never been anyone who's tried to create a younger version of themselves based on themselves quite like data you know I think this was I think that was a fascinating episode but also you're right it wasn't it wasn't one of
0: the list of my favorites that I gave you it's okay um, <laughs> all right so let's let's talk about parallels but I want to offer this episode to you in two different ways first of course I, I want to talk about why it's a meaningful episode but I also want to ask you in an episode that that is based on a very strong, physics sort of premise, is that something that that takes you out of the episode? Do you give it a pass? Um, how, how do you respond to that when they sort of hang a whole episode on some sort of anomaly like this? Uh, but first, I want to hear about what, why it was such a great episode for you. I mean, so with
1: parallels, right, there – let me, let me tell you a little bit about the, the physics behind this. So one interpretation of quantum mechanics, right? If you know nothing else about quantum mechanics, the one thing you should know is that nature does not seem to be deterministic, right? You cannot predict with 100% certainty, even if you give all the initial conditions of your system to arbitrary accuracy, Right. If I tell you where the particles are, how they're moving, what the setups are, you and set up them up so that you know how they're going to interact and when you cannot tell me with certainty what the final outcome is going to be. All you can tell me is what is the problem. the Heisenberg principle, right? Uh, it's, it, it, it is part of the Heisenberg principle, but you don't even need to go to Heisenberg for it. You can just go to the basic Schrodinger equation, which is, this is a quantum particle, here's how it evolves. And you just apply what we call a time evolution operator. And all of a sudden, things are inherently uncertain. Yes, there's the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, but that's not the only place where this quantum weirdness shows up, where this quantum uncertainty comes into play. If I just took a particle and I put the particle in a box and I put the particle in the lower left corner of the box and I close the box and I said to you, where is this quantum particle? And you say, oh, it's in the box. I'd say, right. Then it'd say, "Okay, where in the box is the particle? If you said it's in the left-hand corner just like we put it there, no, it's probably not. It's almost definitely not. You can write down a probability distribution for where it is and that distribution is something that spreads out over time because things are not perfectly well determined at the quantum level period. and That's a bit troubling to people who say I want my universe to be deterministic well if you want your universe to be deterministic there is kind of a way to do it and that way is to say oh instead of having one universe where the uncertainty is in the wave function right the uncertainty is in the outcome instead let's have all of the possibilities actually happen. We just need an infinite number of parallel universes for those possibilities to all exist in. And anytime there's an observation or a measurement or something that would cause multiple outcomes to be possible that you'd have to choose between, they all happen. It's just that we live in one of those universes. So that's what's happened, is we live in the universe where this outcome and not the other outcome has happened. This is known as the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. And although the mathematics works, we of course have no evidence that there would be any other universes other than this one, because we only observe this one universe that we live in. So that's that's theoretically where the physics goes what I thought was interesting about this episode was their way of depicting this to show here are some of the different outcomes and if yes I, I do suspend my disbelief for the traveling between and yeah they said it's an anomaly because they don't know what it is but look if this thing actually manifested itself and we could travel between these different universes I I would probably call it an anomaly until I figured out how it worked too. So I'm willing to give all of that a pass because it tells a good story and also because it allows us to give an interesting exploration of how different things might be, but also what things wouldn't be allowed to be different, what things would be the same. For example, it appears that in all of the parallel universes, there is an Enterprise-D, and a Riker that's still alive. There is no universe that doesn't have a Riker and an Enterprise in it. There are a bunch of them that don't have a Picard, though, because of that whole thing with the Borg. And that really gives an interesting view to me of like, hmm, actually, it looks like, you know, it looks like having recovered Picard and saved him from being Locutus and And, you know, defeating the Borg, like, yeah, it looks like they defeated the Borg in most of them. That seems like an actual probable outcome, perhaps surprisingly. But getting Picard back isn't. That doesn't seem like a probable outcome. So maybe... That's kind of interesting. That's what what sort of fascinated me about parallels, maybe more than anything, is not just the depiction of the parallel universes, but the idea that if we could access them, if we could see them, then we could actually know, like, hey, did we make the common decision? Did we get the common outcome? Or was there something really rare? that happened here did we did we get subjected to a really rare outcome um did we make a choice that most universes wouldn't make that most quantum possibilities wouldn't enable and that i thought was really a fascinating aspect that came into that so yeah, you know, look, I'll agree with you that there are probably some things that being a physicist, that being a theoretical physicist, I, I probably look at them and I, I probably worry about things that most people don't worry about. But I also feel like, you know, there are there are some very clever things that that maybe I do get to wonder about that most people
0: don't get to wonder about that I thought were represented extremely well in that episode. Well, you know, I think it ties into something you were talking about earlier, which is right up front, you were talking about an optimistic view of the future. And if the many worlds theory is true, I think it's quite beautiful that you are intuiting that the universe that we're in is going to become one with a positive outcome. I mean, it ties together that optimism you have, right? That, that we're not living in the in the universe where the Borg are going to win, Right. Because that, that certainly seems like a fatalistic view of the future and seems incompatible with the kind of hopefulness that I think a lot of Trekkies would have. Or do I have he, it wrong?
1: Oh, I, I think that's, I mean, you're asking me for my perception of most Trekkies and oh, absolutely. Like, yeah, like there there is that optimistic view of the future. I think that's that's one of the things that that's most exciting about Star Trek is that is that it isn't, you know, it isn't just a space opera, it isn't a space cowboy, like as much as Captain Kirk, like was sort of that pew pew sort of figure in the 60s, you know, that that really isn't what Star Trek is about. And that isn't even what the original series was about, that it was about these ethical questions that it was about. It's it's really about holding a mirror up to humanity and challenging us to be the best versions of ourselves. And if we don't think that being the best versions of ourselves is going to lead to a better world, a better universe, and a better outcome than if we just gave into our basic our basest instincts, then what are we even doing? What are we even trying for here? Like, no, like you have to believe that you can make a difference, that what you can do can have a positive outcome.
0: Talking about being the best version of ourselves, I think it's a good time to bring up the DS9 episodes on the list, which is the two-parter Homefront and Paradise Lost, which is all about Cisco going back to Earth and looking for changelings. So tell me why this one is on the list because it certainly has a darker tone to it in a lot of ways. Yeah,
1: now I I will tell you Deep Space Nine is a much darker series just point blank than Next Generation is, and it is my second favorite series. Like for me, there are there are parts of DS Nine that rival anything Next Generation did, and. And the redemption home front, like, oh, that that one just got me so hard when I saw it. My favorite part of it is maybe the darkest part of all. Because when I think about that, I think about, yep, Cisco's going back to Earth to look for changelings because he's aware of this dark underbelly. He's aware of the Dominion and he's aware of the changelings that seem to run the Dominion, and they're going to infiltrate Earth. And they're going to try and take control of things. And there is a coup that's going to happen. And they're impersonating Earth's leaders. And this is going to be just a tremendous mess. And Cisco is convinced he has to go and stop it. And there is a tremendous ethical tension that shows up right away because he goes home. And who does he see but his dad? Jake Cisco, uh, Ben Cisco sees his dad, and his dad is glad to see him, and his dad wants to welcome him and greet him. And Sisko is very focused. You know, he's very focused on the mission and on accomplishing what he needs to accomplish. And he tells his dad about the plot and what's happening and what he has to do to prevent it. And his dad gives him a speech about, "Hey, this is not okay. You don't trade." your privacy for the illusion of security. This is years before 9/11, by the way, where we just gave that away as a country. Um, this is this is years before that. But he gives him a big talk about privacy and security and how you know everyone has the right to their own bodily autonomy and you can't just go take blood forcibly from every human being on the planet to make everyone prove that they're not a changeling. That that's not what you do in a. free society. And Cisco tries to talk, tries to reason with his dad to get his dad to agree with him, and his dad doesn't agree with him. So what does Cisco do? He just has his goons come in, and I'm well, I'll just call them goons. He has his goons come in, hold his dad down, forcibly take his dad's blood, and find out that his dad is surprise not a changeling. It's just his dad. So what happened here? Ben Sisko comes to Earth, does this completely unethical thing to his own father, violates his own principles, violates his dad's principles, and he gains nothing by doing it. And he just has to live with it and move on to try and accomplish his mission in the aftermath of all of that. And it is dark as hell, but it also just hit me so hard that your actions have consequences and there's fallout. And when you make the wrong ethical decision, it does not just pass by lightly like Cisco's dad is going to remember that for the rest of his life. And they're never going to have the same relationship again as a result of that. And he'll forgive him, but he'll never forget that that happened. And this is. What I loved about Deep Space Nine is really just exemplified in that episode is that you do not erase your past mistakes and your past failings. They do not just become water under the bridge. These are things that are going to affect everyone you've affected for the rest of everyone's life and maybe even to the generations beyond because it's going to impact their actions going ahead into the future. And it it made me feel very strongly about not trading your privacy for the illusion of security and not giving up your rights and giving up your freedoms because times are hard or things are threatening. Those are the things that make us you know those are the best parts of us those are the best parts of being alive and you should never surrender them so cheaply and and that was what i really loved about that episode is that if if you can make people afraid that's when you have to defend their rights and their freedoms the most. Because when people are afraid, that's when they're most prone to giving them up. And that's when you need to stand up for not just yourself and your own rights, but for the rights of everyone else around you. And that didn't happen in that episode. And that was an episode that really made it so clear to me that this is a principle we cannot violate, we must not violate, and we can't just give
0: things up so easily. What was your opinion of President Jerrish in you? (laughs) Oh, well, I like the president
1: better than I would have liked President Admiral Layton. Does that
0: <laughs> <laughs> counts for good enough? It, you know what's interesting to me, and this is just my own insanity, but when I watch some of these episodes, I'm always thinking about uh, these meta effects and these other things. And, and so you have Jerush Inyo, who is obviously not a human, living on Earth. He's the president of the Federation, but he talks about Earth as if it's the only member of the Federation. Oh, we've we've turned Earth into a paradise and I will not sacrifice that paradise, you know, and, and then he goes on about that. And I think, well, you know, aren't there other planets in the Federation? I mean, what about like, you know, Vulcan? What Vulcan, about Theodore? You know? it all what about, started <laughs> Yeah, what about all these other places, right? I mean, don't don't they count for something? But sometimes they seem to confuse Earth for the Federation, and I'm not saying that uh, uh, that Earth isn't important. But it, it seems like you know, like when the aliens are coming, they're like, "Yeah, we're going to blow up the Federation, and that means we're going to Earth." You know, and it's like, that. "Do not confuse these things. Earth is one part of the the whole thing. There's other parts." But it just it bugs me when they just talk about Earth as if that's it. You know, uh, sometimes I think Bor was right in uh, the Undiscovered Country when she says, huh, "The Federation, it's a Homo Sapiens only club." Okay. Sorry my rant is over. No, that's a fair rant though. I mean,
1: I think I think what that really speaks to is It's very easy to get caught up in the tribalism of the part that affects you the most of where you are. It's very easy to focus on what's going on in our local cities or our local regions or our local state or our country or in the world of Star Trek, in the universe of Star Trek, to focus on whatever specific planet we're headquartered on that we that we live on. We think of that as like, yes, this is this is us as opposed to them and Star Trek has always been focused on that tension between the needs of the individual, the needs of the local group versus the needs of the whole, versus the needs and the and the rights of of the entire community. And and Star Trek Star Trek has never been afraid to explore that and I think by Going to the 24th century and having the president of the 24th century federation be focused on their particular planet, on planet Earth, on on where they live right then and like where their headquarters are is, you know, it is both short sighted, but it also speaks to that, that failing that's so very, very
0: human. When I think of Star Trek examining the individual and the group, the episode that comes to mind is probably the the biggest Borg episodes, which is, of course, best of both worlds, right? Because you have the Borg, which are all about the group. It's all about the collective. And yet the Federation and and our our heroes on the Enterprise are very much about, no, we want to have individual action and agency. We do not submit to assimilation. We wish to have our own courses of action, our own agency, and our own lives. And we do not submit to this and we will fight you. And it leads to this whole interesting idea between the group and the individual. Um, That's how I interpret the Borg. But tell me how you interpret them thinking about best of both worlds.
1: Oh, boy. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there because what you said is definitely an aspect of it. It's definitely about collective versus individual as one of the tensions there. But it's also about, it's also about choice. Do you have the ability to dissent? Is that is that a fundamental right? Is that a necessary right? You know, obviously as as humans and as they do in Star Trek, they argue that it is. They they exemplify this a little bit with a sort of maverick attitude that Riker and Shelby take in that in that episode, um, in that in that two-part episode. But they also explore a whole lot of of other things that I think are incredible, like when when does a cybernetic organism become more machine than human what do you give up if you become part of something larger than yourself do you give up your individuality do you give up your you-ness do you give up like like these are big trade-offs that that happen and and what are you willing to give up and what can you give up and still be yourself and still be an individual and still still have that you know it feels like when we come back to that when we meet hugh in i borg it it feels like wow this is a real tough one right this is a really strange ethical question because maybe you can't entirely erase who someone is maybe you can't totally strip someone of their individuality because they they couldn't for locutus like picard talked about it that he felt like he was just shoved to the back but he was still there seeing all of it watching all of it being all of it deciding all of it Uh, that was still him it just he wasn't in control it was like he wasn't in the driver's seat and that's what i thought was really fascinating to me is the idea that the thoughts in your head, the thoughts controlling your body and your actions might not be your own. That that you might be part machine, but you also might be part someone else's commands or controls. I also think it really speaks to one of our greatest fears of technology that if we live in a technocratic world we might lose our own individuality and our own autonomy and part of me you know thinks of humans as look our our bodies are these physical machines and even if we have free will certainly we know there are ways to manipulate that there are ways to manipulate our own actions our own decisions to to basically trick ourselves into taking certain actions, we know that there are things, situations we can put ourselves in that will make one outcome more likely than another, that will make us more likely to choose to eat the marshmallow now versus waiting and get two marshmallows later. You know, there are there are these tricks that we can use, I'm also extremely curious, you know, looking back on an episode like Best of Both Worlds, not from, you know, a 1990 point of view, but from a 2018 point of view, to say, wow, if something like that was dreamed up by Star Trek, what would an actual version of the board Collective look like. We have the internet now where on things like Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and all of these platforms, people are sharing tremendous amounts of information about their lives. You can see where they are. You can hear their thoughts. You can see what they choose to share with the world. What would it be like if in the relatively near future, people didn't have to type or upload photos where they could just broadcast their thoughts and perceptions? What if billions of people started to do that and you could just plug in and experience, you know, the human collective? Would your thoughts be in there? What would you hear? Could you listen to an individual or would it be a giant cacophony? These are these are the types of questions that, you know, just ran run through my head when I think about the best of both worlds. And I wonder, wow, like this is this is such a tremendous exploration where it just leaves you with more and more and more questions of what is it like what do you feel is it worth it what do you gain what do you lose what do you give up in first contact when data talks about it took him 0.88 seconds to make that decision and people look at him like what and he says that is an eternity for an android. Like, oh yeah, it sure is. With how many quintillions of calculations he can do in a second, for him to consider something for a whole second—that's—that's that's a real deep thought he gave to it.
0: I'm thinking about the question I want to ask you next, and I and I'm thinking about the the right way to ask it.
1: The board queen should have gone after Lore. He would have turned instantly.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. The, the provocation I want to offer you is this. It seems to me that, and I realized that they were just trying to make a cool effect, or at least that's my impression. But it seems to me that that when we look at the Borg Queen, she was almost entirely an automaton, that, that she was not a melding of the organic and the synthetic. Uh, she was really a synthetic life form that had some vestigial Organic parts, uh, because what we see of her is almost entirely mechanical. And I wonder if perhaps the Borg lost control of their own of of their own development and really did turn into the the, pen, the pendulum swung too far in one direction or, or not. What do you think? You know that that was a real curiosity to me in First Contact, which which
1: was my which was my favorite of all the Next Generation Star Trek movies by by a long distance. I, I thought it was a very good movie on its own and, and really the best of what Star Trek The Next Generation on the big screen could look like. Um, to see that, though, it... It was actually a little bit of a disappointment to see the Borg Queen, even though I think it was a wonderful story and was wonderfully told, because I really like the idea of it being completely decentralized. I really like the idea of the Borg being like the Internet that there is no central brain of it, that there is no, oh, you shut this down and you shut the whole thing down. I don't like the idea of a Borg queen. I like the Borg better when it is literally a decentralized collective. That to me is scarier. That to me is more realistic. That to me doesn't require a puppet master pulling the strings, that that even if you shut any of it down, it would all continue on as sort of a a brilliantly collective minded automaton, but also as a mindless automaton, you know, that to me, the Borg are like, it's like the star trek version of a frankenstein monster that this is something that has a life of its own so when you introduce a board queen it sort of to me says like oh but there really is a, there really is a, there really is a wizard behind the curtain after all and that to me was uh, it, it was a bit of a cop out. It didn't go the whole nine yards for me. Um, that was, and that's literally like the only criticism I have about First Contact. But you teased it out of me, so good job. Oh dear. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, no I, well, I, I I have to agree with you because one of the things that I thought was really terrifying about the Borg was that they were they had an emergent order. Uh, in much the same way, for instance, that that language is an emergent order, right? Who who decides that the that the word blue refers to a specific wavelength that we interpret to be a certain color, right? There's there's no one in charge of that. It's 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 an organic emergent process, and the idea that you would have this bad guy that's entirely emergent is very powerful and interesting. So and and it takes it it completely turns it on its head when you say nope, it's not emergent. It's it's. Uh, Hierarchical, and there's a there's a, a wizard behind the curtain who's really pulling all the strings. So I, I agree with you on that one. All right, let's turn to a different kind of episode. Let's turn to the inner light. Cayman, Eileen, Bataille. Tell me. I mean,
1: isn't it sort of just a fascinating idea that if you if your culture is going to die out if your civilization is going to die out how could you send a message how could you send a beacon to anyone that may come upon you in the future to let you know what what your civilization was all about, like the ideas we have today, like there's a project being developed called the Interstellar Beacon, where people want to upload like all of human knowledge, Um, like maybe take all of Wikipedia and broadcast it into space. Here's everything humanity's figured out or like Carl Sagan did in the 70s with the Voyager Golden Record to put to put a golden record on a spacecraft and launch it into interstellar space like a human time capsule. Well, in the Inner Light this is something where this is maybe the ultimate example because what does it mean to be human? It's not this collective experience that we all have. Arguably, the best experience you could have to know what it's like to be human is to get to experience a single life of being a human being. I would argue that you or I or anyone listening to this, that's what it means to be a human, is to look at your life and say, I get it. This is what it's like to be alive as a human on Earth. The idea that you can take that And let someone else, an alien in the far future, experience what it was like to be a human being on earth and have an earth based life to to fall in love, to have or not have a family, to work, to to be a part of a community, to to do what you can do to make a positive difference in the world if that's how you choose to live like that that's all the parts of a human life that's all the parts of a human experience to love to lose to to try the idea that you could get to experience that as as another being, as another civilization in terms you can understand and that you get to keep those memories with you, that you get to keep those experiences with you as you go through your own life. Like what a rich, what a rich thing that is to be able to experience that. That's just if we ever figure out how to do that, I feel like that would be one of the most remarkable ways to bridge misunderstandings that we have between between different cultures, between different time periods, even between even between two of the closest people who can't seem to understand each other. Um, If you could literally step into alien shoes, foreign shoes to you and get to experience what that's like. It just might lead you to understand something from someone else's perspective. That's something I think we all struggle with. And in the inner light, we got to see that that struggle could be overcome even across time. And that was that was a beautiful part of it. And, and also, it was a beautiful story and a beautiful life that came and lived.
0: One of the things I think about when I contemplate this episode, and this is really just my own internal dialogue here, is I think about the characters on the planet, Eileen, Bataille, and, and the rest of them, and I think to myself, now, are they avatars specially designed for the simulation to represent the best of the people, to to, to be the, the signals of what it meant to, to live in that society, or were they real people that were profiled and put in there, and which is the one? Which and which of those is more beautiful and elegant to me to think about? Like I, I, I that's the kind of thing I get lost in. I'm, I, we didn't prep this, so I, I'd be curious to see what you think. That's really interesting because for me, I always assumed
1: that the entire story not not just the the npcs but but the captain picard character's story i assume that was all written I assume that that was something that is like a recorded, this is a thing that happened and you get to live it as this person. But all of the decisions are already made. All of the decisions and feelings, they've been recorded. You just get to experience them. I didn't feel like it was Jean-Luc Picard getting to choose his own adventure. I felt like this is the adventure and you get to live it, but it's already written. And that's a total assumption on my part. There is no reason that that is necessarily the case. But that's what I feel when I see it, that this is this is a story that's already told and we're just seeing it the same way that, you know, if someone, you know. If someone got to experience the life of Alexander Hamilton, they they might feel like they're in control. But no, they're going to die in a duel in the early 1800s because that's how it breaks down, because that's the story. Nice. So I don't know. I don't know the answer to your question. I just know what I assumed.
0: Well, you know, we, you talked earlier about, about things that currently exist in Star Trek technology. And and I got to tell you, I recently went to a, a virtual reality experience. Uh, we have one of those, uh, the Void simulators. I don't know if you're familiar with these, but it's something way beyond like the kind of stuff you can do at home. It's where they put you in this whole room and you're wearing a full kit and it, you, you see yourself and your own hands are different and they have other things like heat and other stuff that's happening to you as you're walking around and it's amazing and it's like holidays are here <laughs> you know it's it's really happening but it is very scripted you know you you have to follow the prescribed Path. We're, we're not quite at the uh, technology where, where you can choose where to go and what to do, but man, oh man, if they've written it out and it's all there for you, it is quite the experience. Yeah, that's incredible. You know, in my book, I talk a little bit about this, uh, although I've
1: never experienced one. The thing that was most remarkable to me is that they did a demonstration in Tokyo a few years ago where they had, you know, a version of this where they had a motion sensors all around you. And so, you know, you'd put on your headset and you would see simulated drops of falling water and you would hear them and they had made the environment so that you would feel like like it felt humid around you. Um, but you would hear the drops falling, you would see the drops falling and you would hold out your hand and see your hand in front of you and you can move it in three dimensions with your palms up. And if you maneuvered your hand to get under the drop of water, you would see the drop of water splash. But they had also rigged up infrasound emitters that you would feel a drop of water hit on your hand where the drop of water should be in 3d space and they rigged it up so that you could not only feel the pressure of the water drop hitting you but they rigged it so it actually felt that wet sensation for a split second and that to me is such an incredible advance just that that extra layer of realism so i am really looking forward to holodecks which when next generation came out with them it was like wow like what an incredible crazy fantasy like the closest we have to that is like the nintendo virtual boy with the vector graphics if you remember that like that was just like silly ridiculous knockoff version of like you know monochrome monochrome virtual reality where you're really just looking in a in a helmet to go to the holodeck in about thirty years and to have it be as realistic as it is, it seems like an absolutely incredible and potentially realistic like thing that we're gonna
0: see and have on the market, maybe even within a decade. We're, we are living in the future. It, it just it just feels that way sometimes. Uh, we are we are definitely in the future. Absolutely, in a, in a lot of ways. So let's do uh, one more episode. Uh, Let's do uh, Chain of Command, Captain Jellicoe, Gull Madrid. There are four lights. Oh, yeah. Tell me. I mean, you know, this is – I feel bad, like, telling you the
1: episodes I want to talk about. Because to me, like, (laughs) these are, like, the classic episodes from, like, from the 1990s. Like, from 1990s Star Trek. Like, these are – These are just fantastic episodes. And so, yeah, when you think about chain of command, Captain Picard is captured by Cardassians and he's tortured. And he talks about being tortured and there are four lights. And he, he, he actually believed that there were five, but he said there were four because for him, that was the one shred of his reality that he could hang on to it was his one act of defiance it was his one thing that he could hang on to and not be completely defeated and and you know to me like that was that was a real strength of will thing for him to be able to do for him to endure and yeah, he's he's endured a lot. It was it was really one of the most brutal episodes of all, but it was the there are four lights, it was the Picard being tortured, it was the pain, it was the agony, and it was the refusal to to give in that I felt was like that's that's the most remarkable part of that episode to me. That's the most remarkable part of that story. Yeah, the Riker Jellico thing. Yeah, is Jellico a stick-up-his-butt captain who's, like, probably a pain in the ass working everyone too hard? Yeah, but he's also, he's also a substitute captain, and he doesn't know anyone. And so, you know, even though no one has any sympathy for him, like, he's, he's in a difficult situation. And and Riker is also a little sour grapesy about not getting to play captain for a while while Picard's not there. And and maybe that's justified, but also maybe it's not like Riker. I don't know. I feel like I feel like a lot of things are made. I feel like Riker gets to play the Star Trek game on the easy level. And that's. (laughs) That's great that that that's maybe you know look when i was a teenager Riker was someone that i looked up to because he he had the self-confidence i didn't have he had the he 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 believed in himself for everything he did he thought he was a great trombone player he thought he would make a fantastic captain he never ran into that self-doubt that pretty much everyone else did and looking at it from, you know, a 30 years later perspective, that's the sort of thing we call privilege. That, you know, perhaps as a straight, tall, attractive white man in the second in command position at a relatively young age, he he had a little bit of privilege in that in that universe and on that ship. And so to look at it through the lens of today, that's the less interesting subplot to me. The interesting part is all happening in that one room where Captain Picard is basically fighting not just with his captors, But with himself to say, like, how can I persevere and not give up in this horrible, torture filled situation? And and he does. But also, you're kind of rooting for him to to take the way out that doesn't result in more torture. You're kind of rooting for him to have the end of his suffering and. And at the end where they go to take him away, you know, and he looks back and he defiantly yells, there are four lights. And he yells at him that you are six years old and and talks to him about like, you know, how he's the weak one and and that Picard won't have it, even though he's scared and he's broken and he's defeated like that's. It was a very courageous episode to me. And Captain Picard, Captain Picard was the courageous hero. And I think he would have been a hero even if he had broken. That was a choice they made to have him not break, to have him not give in. But, but, oh, like that, that was for me, that's a classic Captain Picard episode.
0: I agree with you that, that the Picard-Gol Madrid story was certainly the key. Uh, to the whole thing. And that's really what the episode was about. I I do just want to mention that if any of our listeners are interested on another show on the network, Polytrex, we actually had a whole episode that was set up as a debate with guest presenters on the whole topic of is Captain Jellicoe a good captain? So, if anyone's interested, go check out Politrex. I got a whole debate on it. I, I just thought it's a little interesting diversion, but uh, I agree with you. That the main issue with him is that he's the guest star, right? He's the guest captain. And so he's already behind the eight ball when the whole thing begins. Ethan, what does Star Trek mean to you? In a nutshell,
1: Star Trek means looking to the future with the optimism that it can be better than the present and also that there's a responsibility on all of us to make it so that it won't happen on its own it will only happen if we work for it beautiful so it's 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 a it's a vision of the future but it's also a call to action to be the
0: best versions of ourself I, I have to agree, and it's a, it's a tall order when you think about it, right? When you when you put up there Captain Picard or any basically any of the captains, and it, depending on your own particular inclinations, and you're going through your day and you're angry, mad, sad about something, and uh, you're gonna take an action and you can think to yourself, am I living up to the standards of this thing that I admire, right? This fictional character, who has taught me some lessons about how I want to be and how I can be a better version of myself. Yeah. So it's a tall order. And they don't always live up to it, right?
1: Cisco does take his dad's blood. Picard in First Contact, like great movie, right? Picard in First Contact accuses Worf of being a coward for not just committing suicide by Borg you know these are these are people who they themselves don't always live up to their to their high standards that they set for themselves and everyone around them and that's okay star trek lets you know that that's okay it's okay to fail it's okay to let yourself down and let the people you love around you down but it's not okay to give up it's not okay to let a setback lead to permanent defeat and and that's something that all of the crews and all of the captains in Star Trek have in common.
0: Sounds to me like what you're saying is never give up, never surrender. (laughs) I wouldn't be the first one to say that. (laughs) Sorry, I I just had to throw in a Galaxy Quest reference because it just sounded so right, which, by the way, one of the best Star Trek films ever made, Galaxy Quest. I would put it top four
1: for sure. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Now, I have enjoyed talking with you, but the M5 is signaling that it's time for the Kobayashi Maru simulation. Uh-oh, all right. It is a challenging and difficult test, cunningly prepared by the M5. Should you not only survive the test, but pass it as well, the M5 will award you an honorary Star Trek title. Are you ready, Dr. E? Let's go for it. All right, M5, load the Kobayashi Maru simulation and prepared, record the good doctor's responses. Begin simulation. Simulation available and ready. Question 1. You're hungry. Dinner from Quarks or dinner by Neelix? Oh, Quarks. You're in Starfleet Academy. Next semester, you can only take one of these two electives. Which one do you pick? Stellar Cartography, taught by guest lecturer Lieutenant Commander Nellett Darren, or Stellar Phenomena, taught by Dr. Paul Stubbs? Cartography. Any Ferengi with the lobes for business should heavily invest in Huperian Beetle Snuff or Hippocat Root Futures? Uh, Beetle Snuff. Pick your favorite of these two starship classes, Nebula class or New Orleans class. Nebula class. Repeated viewings of which of these two episodes is more likely to make someone go crazy and be locked up on the penal colony, Tantalus V? Episode Aquiel? Episode Code of Honor? Uh, Code of Honor. Code of Honor will drive you crazier. Outstanding. Simulation complete. M5, please compute the results and tell us if our guest has passed the Kobayashi Maru. Analyzing responses. Ethan, I am pleased to tell you, the M5 has calculated that you have passed the Kobayashi Maru simulation. Congratulations. Wow.
1: Thank God. And I didn't even have to eat any of Neelix's food.
0: (laughs) And now, the M5, who has analyzed your answers, will award you an honorary Star Trek title on behalf of our podcast. M5, what title shall we award to Ethan? Dr.
1: Siegel is awarded the title of Chair of the Cosmology Department at the Vulcan Science Academy. So there you go. Ooh, lucky me. That's a pretty good one. I'll take it. Oh, yeah. When when Harry Kim had to give up his food rations on Voyager for two weeks to get enough saved up to get a clarinet made and had to eat Neelix's food, I... I could taste how awful that must be, how awful Neelix's cooking must have to be, that that it was such a big point to suffer that hard just so you could have a clarinet. That didn't seem like that much to replicate, but man, man, I, I'm someone I, I love food and the idea that I would just have to eat someone who can't cook terrible cooking with terrible ingredients for like... The entire unknown duration journey that might last the rest of my life like that. That's a special kind of torture. Well,
0: you know, maybe it's really a testament to the power of music. It
1: might be. It might be. I mean, I don't think Tom Paris ever slept better than when he was listening to one of Harry
0: Kim's concertos. Ethan, please tell people how they can get in touch with you if they want to continue the conversation with you.
1: Oh, if you want to get in touch with me, the easiest way to find me is on Twitter. I'm at Starts With a Bang. You can also follow all I do on Facebook. I'm I run the page starts with a bang on Tumblr or Google Plus or Of course, you can always follow me on Forbes, and my blog starts with a bang. We put out six new articles every week, and I'm on Patreon and SoundCloud as well. So look for me pretty much anywhere you go, and if you have questions for me, I will do my best. And if you run a Star Trek podcast, I'll be more than happy to talk to you as well. Fantastic. Ethan, thank you so much for being a part
0: of Trek Profiles.
1: It's my pleasure, and may prosperity and long life follow you wherever you go.
0: Here ends this installment of the Trek Profiles podcast. And before we offer a Trek quote to close this episode, I'd like to remind you that you may send us your reasoned feedback, Tongo Strategies, or Kirk Spock Vic to feedback at trekprofiles.com, or on Facebook or Twitter at Trek Profiles. Anything you may send us may be used in the show, or may be offered up as a sacrifice to the Divine Exchequer at the base of the Tower of Commerce on Ferengenac. This week, I leave you with a quote from Lieutenant Commander Data, who in the episode Measure of a Man said, quote, I am the culmination of one man's dream. This is not ego or vanity. But when Dr. Soong created me, he added to the substance of the universe. If by your experiments I am destroyed, something unique, something wonderful will be lost. I cannot permit that. I must protect his dream. Close quote. Thanks for listening, and live long and prosper.